This morning I want to really um, piggyback on what Andrew, Pastor Andrew has been doing through Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is the chapter of, on the, the Holy Spirit. And I'm learning so much just as a student of the Word as he's going through verse by verse. And it's, it's been a beautiful thing to see. And I've, I haven't really studied Romans 8 in, like the way that we're studying it. And uh, it, it, I'm trying to work with Andrew so that we can uh, kind of be on the same page. So I thought it would be um, good if we took a look at the concept of being under the influence of the Spirit from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. But before we go there, I mean, this is one, one verse that is surrounded by a huge context. I want to look at the bigger picture, and here's the thought. If God, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long ago and at many times in many ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets, exactly how does God guide his people today? God's guidance is what I want to talk about today. Verse 2 in Hebrews chapter 1 actually answers the question. It says, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son. So let's follow these pronouns. He, that is the Father, has spoken to us by his Son. And it's a better translation would just be uh, by Son, his Son. It's another uh, version of this says that Jesus is the language of God. If you want to know who God is, you listen to Jesus Christ. Because he speaks the language of God literally. The problem is, um, people have taken this concept and run away with it. We have people in the past like Joseph Smith who who said, okay, if I have to hear the voice of God, then I'm going to go out to the wilderness uh, because I'm mad at church life and church people, so I'm just going to go out there. That's always dangerous, by the way, if you're having that problem, uh, to get alone with the Lord in that way with no accountability. Um, but he goes out there and he, he hears from an angel of the Lord that this is a new gospel. I want you to write this down. So that was a misinterpretation of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Other people in our day have talked about Jesus being their homeboy and talking, to, talking about Jesus as a matter of fact. Like I was shaving this morning. I was just having a conversation with Jesus today. But I know a lot of it may be semantics. If you meant by your word that you were in the word of God, reading God's word, speaking to Jesus, praying to Jesus, and listening to what he says through his word, if that's what you mean by speaking to Jesus, amen. But if you don't mean that, what do you mean? And if you mean that you heard the audible voice of God and you're speaking nonchalantly to him in the quietness of your bathroom with your warm shaving cream and your hot razor, and you're just having a conversation with Christ, here's my question to you. How do you not have a huge cut on your throat right now? Because people who have seen the resurrected Christ fell as if they were dead. That person's no longer my friend. <laughs> Um, But I'm just getting to think that the scriptures, when they see the risen Christ, the people that have been closest to him, they they met him with fear and trembling. He will always be the transcendent one. He will always be above us. He will always be the God above us. Others have written books that have sold thousands and millions of copies. 
This has been marketed to the point of selling bracelets and shirts. And, and what is being said is that people have certain connections, i.e. Sarah Young, who talks to Jesus audibly. And I call you by the authority of God's word and as a pastor of this church, if you have Sarah Young in your library, to take Sarah's Young book and put it in your cult apologetic section because that's where it belongs. Jesus does not talk to Sarah Young. She doesn't have special privileges. And you, in fact, don't have to go to here to hear from God's word. Open up God's word and you'll hear God speak. So if that's not what it means, I mean, half of you are still here, so... <laughs> if that's not what it means, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, let's take a little, just a small little detour through the narrative of John. John chapter tw- uh, 21. Let me just explain this, and then we're going to move. If, you're gonna, if you have your Bibles, how many have them? Get them up. I'm going back to the old school fo- folks. I don't have the PowerPoint up. That's my fault, not theirs. You got them up. Got your, I'm not going to pull the Joel Olstein on you with a catchphrase about the Bible. But the Bible is very, very important, and it should be checked. But John chapter 21 You know the account with Peter and Jesus, Um, and what's going on there is Jesus asks asks him three different times, do you love me, Peter? If if you guys don't know the story, that's in John 21, verses 15 to 17. And and Peter, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know how it is. You guys have been there, right? Like, you love the Lord with all your heart, but you, sometimes you just act like a knucklehead and you, you give in to the desires of your flesh. It was one of those moments for Peter. Like, he doesn't have much bragging rights right now. He had just denied Jesus three times, and then interestingly enough, it's another, another time, but Jesus asked him three times. That had to be a reminder to him, like, man, you denied me three times, but now do you love me three times? So that's there. But the, the, the overarching concept that's in that passage has to do with the idea of, Jesus says, if you love me, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So that was the takeaway for Peter, and he would write wonderful letters, wonderful epistles, where he finally understood that. But in John chapter 16, you, ha- you have to kind of go back a little bit, and that's where I want you to open your Bible if you're there. John chapter 16, verses 7 to 11. Let's, ex- let's, let's really see the progression of how are we going to feed the sheep? And what does that equate to today? How, how do shepherds, pastors feed the flock, i.e. cross-point community? How are we to feed the sheep that God has called us to feed? Well, we have to understand what's going on in John 16, 7 to 11. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So what is Jesus saying before the cross, before the Holy Spirit has, has come, and, and the way that he comes in Acts chapter 2? But what is Jesus saying? He's promising his disciples, Peter being one of them, that there is a day coming when the Holy Spirit is going to come down. And that is a very important theme in John. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to be taken up, And we know the rest of the story, that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, that 
he was resurrected, he was taken up, and then that was for the purpose so the Holy Spirit may come down, and come down in a unique way that hadn't been um, even thought about the, the way that he would indwell people. That, that was not on their radar, these disciples, that kind of indwelling. And then go a little bit further with me, a couple verses down in verses 13 to 14. Where Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you into all truth. That is a key concept of God's guidance. Why? For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here you see the interconnection, the intercorrelation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of them are involved in salvation. All of them are involved in, in sanctification, discipleship. All of them are involved in summation and glorification. That they work together. They're so close-knit. To separate them would be a heresy. To say they're the same would be a heresy. They're distinct personal. But the Holy Spirit specifically would be the one to his role is to exalt the Son, Jesus Christ. Number one, coming from Jesus himself. So the Holy Spirit would be the one that was promised by Jesus in John 16. He would be the one, according to verses 13 and 14, to guide us into all truth. So specific, the specific context that has to do with the disciples but a practical application of that today is that he would guide us as well. So when did the Holy Spirit come? Over here, they're going to answer it. Right, Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came upon the church. He came upon the church. So he comes, Jesus leaves, he, he ascends, he raises from the dead, just like he said he would. And just like he said, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and he indwelt not a temple, but he indwelt a people. And then lastly, many of you guys know this, this passage as well. If you don't know these, I don't want to make that assumption that you do. I have the, the verses in there, so you can look them up later. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says that he breathed out the scriptures it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So note the progression, summary. Jesus Christ promised from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you have the proto-evangelion, the first promise of the gospel, that he will crush your head. Satan, and you will strike his heel. All these things go on throughout the Old Testament. God is, is, is reconciling the world to himself through his promises, through this sacrificial system, which ultimately culminates in the fullness of Jesus Christ, who would come and be the final amen from God. Jesus is born of a virgin. He walks the earth. He fulfills God's righteous requirements in his active obedience. He's the second Adam in Romans chapter 5 where he's the one who came. The first Adam got it wrong, but he got it right 100%. 
He tells his disciples in John 16 that he will go away and he's going away for the purpose of this idea of guidance. When he goes to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come down. It's not like Jesus left. It's just the role that Jesus had on earth in his incarnation was fulfilled. So he went back to the Father. He's interceding at the right hand right now for you and me. And the Holy Spirit comes down, and now what is he doing? It's not that he's forgotten about Jesus. He keeps pointing people to Jesus. And he does that by way of salvation, as people are born again to the living hope. But he does that by way of your growth and discipleship and your progressive sanctification. He is with you. So he is the guide. He is the one that will guide us. And then in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3, verse 16, it says that the Holy Spirit actually breathed out the Word of God. And this Word of God is what carried us along in 2 Peter chapter 1. That these, these apostles, these disciples that became apostles, they were carried along by the Word of God. Everything that hit the, the papyra or the paper, whatever they're writing out, you know what I mean? It was meant to be there by God, every single word. And not not only every single word, but it was meant to guide us as Christians today. So you see the subtle shift of this idea of the supernatural ministry being through Jesus, through miracles, through power, through all these things, and ultimately it carrying on to the supernatural ministry being of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit focuses in on the Word of God, and He doesn't depart from it. So in order, uh, in, other, in order to understand the idea of guidance, the Holy Spirit guides us through the Word, we have to understand two words, two, um, two phrases. One of them has to do with the decretive will of God. That's just a fancy word of saying it involves both God's sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty means He controls all things by the power of His Word. Hebrews chapter 1, that if Jesus were to remove his word from the earth, it would cave in and fall apart because he holds it together. He's not only the creator of the world as we know it and everything in it, but Jesus is the sustainer of the world and everything in it. And God, that makes him God, that puts him on a level that we are not on. So we don't come to God and say, I'm going to define you. This is what it looks like to me. This is what makes sense to me. This is the way I'm going to philosophize with people. I'm going to talk about all these things like I, but removed from this book, it means absolutely nothing. So the decretive will of God can be found, uh, uh, Pastor Andrew is moving there towards Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, where he says, just, just to pray. It's almost like Paul's like, man, after talking about all these things, here's where, where my heart is. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Holy moly. If you can't preach, just reading that. That's the decretive will of God. Who can understand these things? Because according to Moses in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the first part, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So the secret things, another if you're, you're like decretive will, that's a little deep, but we'll just put secret. 
Why didn't I just say that? Maybe I should have, now that I think it up. Maybe I just should have put secret down there. Secret will of God. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 really represents both wills of God. So the decretive, i.e. secret will of God, is, is the secret things. But then he says, the things that belong to us are the things that are revealed. They belong to us, and they belong to our children forever, that we may do all the words that are written in this law. Okay, so the things that are revealed, where are they at? They're in the Word, right? You guys, this is A plus B equals C. A. It's, it's simple, right? The Word of God is where we find what, what is known as the preceptive will. These are the precepts of the Word of God. And since the Word of God belongs to us, we must go to the Word of God. That's my introduction. People who preach are laughing because you're like, you totally failed that one. I, I know. So, what does the Word of God teach about the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives? The answer can be found in Ephesians 5.18 but before we look at this verse, we need to explore Ephesians in its context. So I have a little, little place for you to take notes there. Uh, but buckle your seatbelt because Ephesians is a wonderful book. It is a wonderful book. One commentator says this, and I'll kind of piggyback what he's saying. After presenting doctrinal content in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul then gave... In chapters 4 through 6, some practical applications of those doctrines. He repeated his emphasis on the believer's walk as the hallmark of this section. So up to this point in Ephesians, so you got Ephesians 1 through 3, which is more the theological foundation. It's the bedrock on which our beliefs and applications stand. And Ephesians 4 through 6 represents the application of that. But don't get me wrong. I know that commentators and people like to talk about how, yeah, this is the theological foundation and this is the application, but does that mean there's no application in Ephesians 1 through 3? Oh, man, there's, there's much, mucho application in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses chapter 3. That's neither here nor there. But let's just stick to this outline here. So up to this point, the challenge, up to the point of Ephesians 1 through 3, the challenge has been to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So up to this point, Paul has focused in on what to put off and what to put on. And he last used the word walk in Ephesians 2.10 to bracket his description of how God has brought his readers from an existence under the world, the devil, and the flesh to an existence of God's graciously restored creatures. Although they once walked in the transgressions and the sins, and I mean, he gets deep if you look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he's talking about the inward desires, the immaterial part of you, the heart of you, which is a thinking heart, a doing heart, a feeling heart. Every single part of who you are on the inside is dead. Woo! Hey, they said it. Ephesians 2, I didn't. Right? But that's the reality. 
The reality is, you don't just need a therapist to come to Christ. Yeah, you know, you got those felt needs that you have. Hey, you feeling lonely today? Come to Jesus. He'll comfort you. Hey, you want, you, you know, you struggling with addictions? Just come to him. He'll, he'll take care of that. Hey, if you're doing this, come to Jesus. He'll do it. Some of our missionaries had to find out the, old, the hard way that sometimes in those pantheistic cultures, all they did was add Jesus to the shelf of their gods. But the gospel that's being prescribed and taught by the apostles, you want to get a good picture of this? Look at Paul as he shares his testimony to King Agrippa and Acts. He doesn't say, hey, hey Agrippa, if you want to have your best life now, like, take a look around. He's like, dude, I've got my best life now, man. Look, at I, I have this whole kingdom. I have Caesar over me. I could take you out right now like I did your Messiah. But that's not what Paul did. Paul said a couple things, but what, what really got my attention is the way that he described his salvation experience. And think about this the last time you shared the gospel with one of your friends. Did you ex- explain it like this? That I have been ripped out, plucked out of, transferred out of this kingdom of darkness where Satan ruled. And I have been transferred and placed into the kingdom of light where Jesus rules. That is somebody who understands Ephesians 2. Well, could it be he understands that because he wrote it? Well, maybe. That's neither here nor there. But Ephesians 2, the idea is is that we are not just barely okay I'm, we're just not just our image is just a little bit flawed that's not what he's talking about there it says you don't need cpr right to say hey pray this prayer after me and you'll, you'll come to know jesus christ dude you're dead you need to be woken up by god god needs to intervene 100 and he needs to wake that person up he needs to be born again to the living hope there's nothing you can do to do that except for do what he's told you to do which is preach the word in clarity and ask for god to open up that door So this idea of walking, being transferred out, Ephesians is all about that. In the second half of the letter, Paul will show in concrete terms how the reader's new way of walking should look. He teaches us how to walk, for instance, in unity in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. He teaches us how to walk. Walk is the key theme. And holiness in Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. He teaches us how to walk in love in Ephesians 5, 1 to 6, and in wisdom in Ephesians 5, 15 through 6, 9. It is this last section of wisdom that I want to highlight this morning. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 18. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in the Lord with all your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So you'll note that he gives, gives us a path to biblical wisdom here in these, in these verses. We're instructed to examine our ways. We're expected to seize every opportunity, not just some, but every opportunity with that wisdom. And we need to understand what God's will is. 
And fourthly, he's moving to the idea that I want to point out today is we must be filled with Christ's Spirit. And this is, number four, is where we are going to camp out. So let's consider Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Here's my first point. Being filled with Christ's Spirit, what does that mean? It means that we, put, we, we need to put off being under the influence of the flesh. That's what's being described here. Paul is quoting, and I don't have time to talk about what the Bible says about the prohibition of alcohol. And frankly, that's not what the passage is about, other than something that's drawing from that analogy. So we're not going to go down there. When I preached at the mission a few years ago, I did a, a, a sermon series that almost got me booted out if I didn't know Dave Messier. You know, he's got my back down there. But, and also thankful to Jeremy Twombly, who changed the title of my sermon series to, you know, uh, that well, something along the lines that if uh, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, I changed it from that to such were some of you. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to following there, you have this idea of people will not inherit the kingdom of God because of their unrighteousness. That's the issue. The issue is the unrighteousness of the heart is that we're not perfect, that God demands perfection from us. The rub is, it's not our perfection that gets us to heaven, it's Christ, his perfection that gets us to heaven. But as I went through, I, I focused in on the idea of it does have drunkards in there. But the, so I took each one of those passages and I did a topical, topical type series on it. And it was amazing to see how the world at large, the culture at large, this non-church culture, how they reacted to some of the things that were in there. Like homosexuality, drunkenness, idolatry, adultery. Man, are those themes that we deal with today in the church? They are. They are. But you know what the beautiful thing is? It's the spotlight of this whole thing. It shines on this idea of such were some of you. You know the catchphrase, come to Jesus as you are. I'm okay with that. Come to Jesus as you are, but don't stay like you are. Jesus didn't die for you so that you can not change. Jesus died for you so that you would no longer live for yourself, but you would live for him in between the already of salvation and not yet of summation. So this passage in Ephesians 5.18 is not about drunkenness. So what's it about? What's it about? It's about being under the influence. Hence my title, being under the influence. Do not be under the influence with wine. When you're under the influence with wine, you will see show up certain things. And he pointed out debauchery. And debauchery is just another word for wild or undisciplined life. Debauchery is another, another word. If you want to put a picture on that, look at the prodigal son. He left the, the quietness of his home, the, the boundaries of his father, to go into the world and to live it up. To be driven by selfish ambition to live a life that he thought was better than what he had with the Father, and he found out real quick that it was a lie. It undermines all self-control. It undermines all constraint. This is what it means to be drunk 
in the Spirit. To be under the influence of the flesh is that. In other words, alcohol becomes the vehicle by which your flesh becomes the master. What might this lead to? Well, what shows up? What would that look like if I wasn't under the control of the Holy Spirit? What might that look like? Because there's no, there's no neutral ground here. You're either under the control of the Spirit or you're under the control of the flesh. And if you're under the control of the Spirit, you will not be gratifying the desires of the flesh. But if you're gratifying the desires of the flesh, you will not be under the control of the Spirit. You will not be under the influence of the, the flesh when you're under the influence of the Spirit. That's the idea. So when the influence of the, the, the flesh shows up, what will show up are things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before, Paul says, that those who do such things, and he means habitually, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow, that's a pretty good fruit display of what shows up when you're under the influence of the flesh. So, here's what it means on a practical level. Ground zero, local church. Somebody comes in to talk about eschatology, but they're fired up, they're angry, they're mad. Do they really want to talk about eschatology? So what's going on? That person is under the influence of the flesh. And until we deal with the heart issue, there's going to be no conversation about eschatology. Last things. Last things. That's what eschatology means. Someone comes to the church about, uh, you know, their wife and how their wife was, did this to them. And they're angry. They're throwing stuff at us. Say, if you don't do something about this, I'm going to do it. What's happening? They're under the influence of the flesh. That person needs to learn, as my, my, my buddy Dr. Ellen says, to stop making excuses and to start making confessions. You, get, you start making confessions when you're under the flesh, you get the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So what does it mean to be... So this is a perfect analogy, isn't it? To, to be under the influence of something. You give up your independent exercise of your will to another spirit. That's the idea. I give up, based off my own choice and my own heart, who I'm gonna follow, who, what I'm going to live by. I'm talking as a Christian, not as an unbeliever. Do you see why now why uh, the hard alcohol is called spirits? Do you see that? The world gets it. Because when you, when you drink that hard alcohol, you're, they call it spirits because that's what you're under the influence of. You're under that control. What does it mean to be filled? Because this is the issue. What does it mean to be filled? There's two meanings in the Greek. The first one has to do with the feeling that God gives a person to accomplish a particular task. You see that being played out in Acts a lot as Luke is writing. That's another study. But we want to highlight the second word group. It, refer, it, refers, to, it refers to the ongoing state or condition. He is not talking about the kind of feeling that is an event or repeated events. But this is a state of the soul. It's a characteristic of the person. And this can, and this can vary in intensity. Think of two people under the influence of alcohol. One will be different at a .06 versus one that's different at a .26. 
So this is what it is talking about. The second, it's an ongoing condition. It's a state, a settled state of the soul. The other thing that needs to be addressed is the idea of who does the feeling. Who fills, what, what is this idea of being filled with the, the spirit, being filled with the, the flesh? Who fills it? Well, this is where the language kind of helps you out because the verb is actually passive, to be filled, which what does passive mean? I hear that coming from the back. What does passive mean? It means that you are not doing the action. Something else is doing the action. Someone else is doing the action for you. So Luke likes to, to use, um, so the subject you, be filled, he does not say you Christians fill yourself. So who then does the filling? The Holy Spirit does the filling in the Christian life. Here's the most important part for today's takeaway. What are we to be filled with? What are we to be filled with? If the Holy Spirit does the filling, what are we to be filled with? Some people will say we need to be filled with the Spirit. But that's not what's being said here. It's not what's being taught here. This is actually, should be translated, we need to be filled by the Spirit. In other words, by means of the Spirit. So what does it mean to be under the influence of the Spirit like that? This is where I want you guys to do a little bit of thinking. Tom Pennington is a a pastor in Texas, and he has like an eight-part series on this, and I'm trying to put it in one, okay? So it's like an impossible task. But for those of you who want the full teaching on this, I can give it to you if you ask me later. But for now, let me see if I can summarize what he's saying. You know, the interesting thing about where Paul is writing and knowing who he's writing to and where he's at is this is, in a, this is a letter that he's writing, and he is actually in jail right now. And being in jail, Paul wrote certain letters to the churches. It's important to note that because as he's writing Ephesians, he's, he, he's sending Ephesians out one way to a church, but he's also writing another letter through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit called Colossians. You know what's interesting about this? Is that Colossians 3.16, if you look at that, he is talking about the idea where one is emphasizing to the Ephesians that the Holy Spirit's the one who does the feeling, but in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, he's talking about what we're to be filled with. The, further, what's interesting about that is that the, he's, he's, the same author is writing, and he's writing to two different places, but what surrounds it is the same exact thing. In other words, he... he encourages these believers to be talking about psalms and hymns together and spiritual songs. He talks about having thanksgiving in all things. He's talking about the duty of the wife, the duty of the husbands, the duty of children, the duty of fathers, the duty of slaves, the duty of earthly masters, and so on. However, the exception is, the only thing that's different is one that says, be filled with the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who does the filling. That's Ephesians 5.18. But Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So being filled with the Spirit of Christ means that we need to be under the influence of the word of Christ. And Andrew said it from the pulpit a couple weeks ago, 
And that's where I said I can preach this because we believe the same thing. To be filled with the Spirit is to no longer live for yourself in the mundane, but you're choosing to walk by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who fills you. And what does he fill you with? He fills you with the content of the words of Christ. And that's what we are to be under the control of, the words of Christ. So Colossians 3.16 is the interpretive key for this. The question that I have for you is, is this difficult? Guys, I know in my own life that I find myself turning to so many other things sometimes other than the Word of God. You're so transparent, Pastor. I am. I am very transparent. Because I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. I'm a sinner that's been saved by grace. And the only reason I'm up here today and, and representing God in this pulpit, this pulpit is hiding my knees so you can't see them shake because I'm afraid, not of you guys at all. You guys don't scare me at all. What I'm afraid of is that I'm going to be held accountable for the things that I teach before God. And what I see from a lot of churches is people that just come up here and it's a free-for-all and nobody is calling them out saying, hey, that's not what the Word teaches. We cannot be a church that strays from the Word of God. Ever. It is the bedrock for salvation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 7, that there are two builders. One builds his life upon the sand of life. The other builds his life upon the words of Christ. Isn't that interesting with this correlation of Colossians 3.16 that we are to be filled with the words of Christ and Jesus himself says in Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 7, build your life on the words of Christ. It's not disconnected. It's very much connected. So why do we, and I, I, why do we as a whole, nearly over 2,000 years removed from these, these writings, why do we think we have to turn to everything else? Is the Bible taking a back seat in your own personal devotions? You guys, I have a lot of books. I'm speaking to myself right now, but it's the Word of God. The purity, the, I mean, read Psalm 119 just phrase by phrase as he goes through that. He tells you a thousand different ways of how to look at the Word of God. But the Word of God cannot take a back seat in this pulpit. The Word of God cannot take a back seat in the one-on-one -on -one ministries that we have out here. The Word of God cannot take a back seat in our life groups. The Word of God cannot take a back seat in our junior high, our kids groups, our high school groups, our women's groups, our men's groups. The Word of God can never take a back seat here, ever. Because we're called, we're commanded by Christ to be under the control, under the influence of the Word of God. And that's going to be hard for some of us in here, the transition, because we've allowed other voices to speak into this. The Word of God. Listen to some of these guys. Um, some of these guys. One of them is Martin Luther. Do you guys know him? He says, The Word is the only bridge and path by which the Holy Spirit comes to us. That needs to be heralded, 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 right? 
from the sundial bridge all the way down to the deep roots cities in Mexico, all the way sweeping across the world. It needs to be the same thing, that the Word of God, the Word is the only bridge and path by which the Holy Spirit comes to us. We do not gape up to heaven for him as the unstable spirits and visionary enthusiasts do and separate him from the spoken word and ministry of the word. But we learn and know that he will be by and with the word and lead us into all truth through it for there is no other way to experience the Holy Spirit. John Calvin What he says here, the Holy Spirit so addresses his own truth that he only displays and exerts his power where the word is received with due reverence and honor. God does not bestow the Spirit on his people in order to set aside the use of his word, but rather to render it fruitful. And to those two men, I say amen to those statements. So let's make the connection here. Let's make the connection. Okay, you've said a lot. You've talked a little bit about Greek. You know, you've talked a little bit about, you know, these other words. But bring it home. Bring it home. I need something right now. I need something to chew on. I, I hear what you're saying. I hear that the Word of God is what I'm, I'm called to by Jesus through the Spirit to be controlled by, under the influence of. But how do I do this? Well, here's what I would say to you. Number one, start with the mundane moments of your life. Begin with the mundane moments of your life. What do I mean by that? is that so much of the Christian experience, as I see it, where we like to point to the bigger, or the, the, uh, the bigger things that appear to be bigger. What I mean by that is, when Michaela was born, my daughter, she's now 13, 13 years ago, my dad left the earth, died of cancer. Michaela comes into the world, my dad goes out. I was praying for my dad fervently with my brother's, that the cancer would go away. And I think God did remove it for a little while. But we all have an appointment with death, and my dad knew that. I recall that time in his life where God gave time for him to reconcile with my older brother and for them to, you know, they're always, you know when you're so alike with someone, you just, you're at each other's head. That was my brother, my older brother and my dad. They both played Major League Baseball. If you guys know who George Brett is, you guys know who that is? George Brett played on the, the Royals, and he, uh, Kansas City Royals, and he got drafted right before my dad did in baseball. My brother played with the Cleveland Indians as well as a pitcher. He's throwing uh, nearly 100 miles an hour until he had minor, minor elbow surgery, and his fastball went down to 89. Didn't fly anymore in the major leagues. But I saw the Lord take these two that were at enmity with each other, and I saw this relationship and this restoration, this forgiveness take place, where I was like Peter, where I said, help my unbelief, and Jesus was this, like this to me, like, if you say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and thrown into the sea, it will happen if I believe. Believe what? Well, what's the context there in Luke 17? The context is forgiveness, and I saw it, and it was a supernatural work of God. That's one thing on my finger. I saw God, I can tell you five things today if we had time about things that God did where he just showed up and I'm like, nobody can ever say anything about that. But here's what I've come to find out. I don't rely on those things. You know why? Because he's focused my energy on the word. 
rather than the experience. That's why Peter said, as Chuck and I were talking this morning, that's why Peter could say to you, we have this experience. He had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was real. His experience, one of the things on his fingers, he could say, I have actually that happened. It's recorded. It's written. But then he says, but we have something more certain than that. What does he say? The word of the prophets. The word of Christ is more certain than his experience. So where does this begin with you? I want to challenge you today, maybe by start by reading Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp. Because Paul Tripp turned me on to this concept of, I can glorify God in the mundane. And what I mean by that is there's thousands of moments this week where you will have the opportunity to walk by the Spirit, to be filled with the Word of Christ, and to be, li- to be under its control, loving people, overcoming evil with good rather than evil. And you, when you do that, God gets just as much credit and just as much glory as he does when he removes cancer. But you know the difference between the two? One's under our control and the preceptive will of God, and the other one's not under control and the sovereign, decretive, secret will of God. So that's the first challenge. Some of you are like, some of you young people, I'm pointing over there because that's where they're at. See, they're up, up there. Maybe... Part of the reason why your faith isn't real is because you've just, you know God up here. You know about God. You, you, know the Psalm, you know Psalm 23, but you don't know the God of Psalm 23. You haven't experienced him. So that would be the challenge. Glorify God in the mundane moments. Take him seriously. Guess what? Your friends who think that you're a, you're, you're a weirdo for being a Christian, you know what they really, really need? They need Jesus Christ. You have something they need. Give them Jesus. Number two, sing. Sing rather than complain. Sing songs, he says, rather than complain. Give thanks. Give thanks to the the Lord. Wives, I've got a bunch of things there for you. In the rest of this passage, husbands, there's things that are being talked about. Children, slaves. Here's the point. If we choose to obey God and live by his word, then we are walking by the Spirit. It's a different concept, you guys. You guys know that when, we, when we're looking for an elder to come on, we're not looking for who's popular. We're not looking for who everybody likes, even though that's, that they should be someone of, with a good reputation. But you know what's been neglected in a lot of churches is Titus and Timothy that talk about the characteristics of an elder. And the characteristics of an elder are not sporadic, out of control. It's consistent. It's very much under control. Does that make sense? That is being under the control of the Spirit. So what's our responsibility? We need to cultivate an awareness awareness of the Spirit's presence. Any of you ever have guests in your home? Does your attention to the details that go on in your home change? Guys are like, no, not at all. But the women are like, yeah, they do. Like, I want the towels to be kept up. I want the laundry to be done. I want the beds to be made. We want to be hospitable to them. You're aware that they're in your home, right? Hopefully you are. What if we had an awareness of the, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life like that, right? 
you're watching something, something pops up, and you, you know that it's not good, and you're like, I just can't do it. I'm addicted. I'm enslaved. Well, here's the deal. If I were sitting right next to you, would you have the willpower to not go on that website? Yeah. Well, why is that? Well, you're right here. I wouldn't do such a thing. Think about the Holy Spirit. Does he not indwell you? Practice confession of sin. Practice confession of sin. When you mess up, and you will mess up, be the first one to go drop your sacrifice at the altar like it says in Matthew chapter 5 and go, go to that person and say, hey, I, I messed up last night. Will you forgive me? Do that to the Lord first. Ask for his forgiveness. Number three, regularly expose yourself to the word of God. Regularly expose yourself to the Word of God. You know a theme that I see when people talk to me and they're stuck in a cul-de-sac and, and if they're Christian? One thing shows up 100% of the time. The things that they knew kept them healthy as a Christian, they've gotten away from it. The spiritual disciplines of prayer, the spiritual disciplines of even fasting and praying and being in fellowship, most all of those things are gone. And so part of my job is, is kind of like a comfort care ministry where I'm giving them the comfort that God gave to me. I'm giving them the same comfort that God gave to me, and I'm, I'm bringing them into the body of Christ where they can be comforted by others who have received the comfort from God. And when they get back into those communities and they get back into the spiritual dis- disciplines, guess what happens? Peace. Right? For not just... Expose yourself to the Word of God, but really, really, really meditate on it. Dwell upon it. Think upon it. Take it in. I really highly recommend for women, we call it a journal, but for men, it's like man cave journal. That's what we call it. Get your man cave journal out, and don't just read the Word, but what is it saying? Study that thing. Eat it up. Chew on it. Spit it out. Chew on it. Put some, put some feet on it. Say, hey, based upon what I read today, this is my prayer. This is where I'm going today. I'm going to go into this meeting today, and this is what's going to be controlling my heart right here. Lord, give me an opportunity to control it. Number five, follow the Spirit's lead. When he brings his word to our minds, obey it. Right? When I say that that word phrase to my wife, and it was wrong, what happens in my heart? I talked about this last time. Guilt shows up, right? Guilt shows up. Flag. What do I need to do? Confess. Honey, will you please forgive me? Confessions, right? What happens in my heart? I get peace. If I, what happens, what does the Holy Spirit do? He's bringing to mind passages that I know because I've been in the Word of God. I teach these things. I counsel these things. Am I above them? Not at all. I'm more accountable to them, actually. And lastly, lastly, cultivate an attitude of complete dependence on the Holy Spirit in everyday life. Let me close with a story. Got two minutes. I'll never forget a few years ago counseling this guy that was definitely on the the sinning side of the spectrum. There was some physical abuse going on, and I had been called by another church to come in and try to help just to help them through the mess of, of those situations. The, the world calls this physical abuse. The world calls the, the woman the victim, 
And we use biblical language. We say that the person is sinning and the woman is suffering and they both need Jesus Christ. There's hope for both of them. As I was meeting with him, um, it didn't go well the first time. Like he threatened me and he threatened my family. And then uh, I was like, you just lost all rights to this counseling ministry. And I said, if we meet again, I'll be in the presence of your pastor and we will have a conversation then. And I will honor that. Yeah, but no buts. A couple weeks later, I got a call from the pastor saying, hey, will you come down and meet with this guy? And it's the last thing I wanted to do. But you know what keeps me steady is the promises from the word. The such were some of you keeps me in line with everything else. I go down, I meet with him, and we meet together, and he's, he's very spiritual. He's the leader of their Bible studies. He's the first one to pray so elegantly. He's the one that is going on mission trips, and he's got everyone fooled. Because what's been going on behind closed doors is evil and sinful. In fact, disqualifies him from any of the things that he was doing in the church, but nobody knew about it. So we talked, and he started out, and he started say, I'm going to record this. I'm like, go ahead. I don't care, you know. Record it. I, I have nothing secret to say to you. It's going to be from the Word of God, you know. He went in, and he talked about Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, and elegantly he's describing all these things, and goes to Ephesians 5, or Ephesians 4, starts talking about that, and he goes to Ephesians 5, and he starts talking about the roles of the husband, and I just kind of, I'm kind of sitting there saying, okay, Lord, Give me an entry gate to speak if, if you want me to. And You know what I noticed? The part that we just preached about today in Ephesians 5, everything in his Bible was lit up. It was written down, highlighted. But that part in his Bible, there was nothing on it at all. He didn't even contemplate it. He didn't even, well, what is it? It's the idea of walking in wisdom and to be filled with the Spirit rather than walking in the flesh for that leads to debauchery. Be under the influence of the Spirit. And I said to him, and I pointed that out, I said, hey, can I, if, if you're willing, I'd like to speak into some of the things you're saying. I said, the key to your problem right now is for you to understand Ephesians 5.18. And I don't think you do. Because I'm seeing different fruits show up. And I start talking about this is what showed up. This is what, what's here. This is what's here. But if you really, 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 really want the hope of the gospel today, you need to pay attention to Ephesians 5.18 in its context where it says that you, I said to him, you have been under the control, under the influence of the Spirit. And it's a very uncontrolled lifestyle. It's, it's a debauchery type lifestyle. And you're reaping the fruit of your lifestyle. But what you need to learn to do is be under the control and under the influence of the Spirit, which is much, much different. Because rather than taking these texts and manipulating these texts and twisting them to get a, what you really, really want, what you want to be seen in high regard, and you want to be respected, and you want to be all these things, and you're using your wife as a vehicle for that to happen, you're using your Bible study as a vehicle for that to happen, and you're using the people in your church as a vehicle for that to happen, you're using your school for that to happen, and what's happening is you set up all these avenues for one thing, to fulfill the lustful desires of your heart. And unless you turn from that, there's no hope for you. But if you want to turn from that, and you want to start to move in that direction, we can walk together, and I can show you how to do that. I mean, most of the time people walk out when I do that. But he didn't. And you know what happened? 
his heart truly was transformed by the gospel. And he began to realize the things that I talked about, that he was using his wife that way. He was using his Bible study that way. He was using people that way. And true repentance and confession was happening in his heart, and brokenness occurred. The power of the gospel, you guys, is going to be found by looking to the word of God every single day, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, being under the control, being under the influence of the word of God, recognizing that, yeah, sometimes you'll be under the control, the influence of the spirit but be, or, or the flesh, but be quick to confess. Keep a clean slate with God. Keep a clean slate with others. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this time together. Lord, there is so much contained in these passages that we looked at today, Lord. But I pray that the takeaway for everyone in here is that we would have a higher view of who you are. Hold up your word higher in our hearts, Lord, and be diligent to um, be in your word every single day. Lord, help us to be a ministry of comfort care to others who are needing the comfort that we receive from you. Lord, it's a beautiful thing, the church, when we're operating in this way. Lord, I pray that love would be the primary theme of everything that we do. And because we love you, we keep, keep the word of God as first place in our own personal lives, but also as a church, Lord, as we move forward. Lord, I don't want to neglect the fact of the matter that there may be people in here that do not know Jesus Christ today. Lord, I pray for those people right now that, like I said, you have to intervene. You have to open up their heart. You have to transform them. You have to cause them to be born again to the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I pray, Lord, that they'd recognize right now that their problem is perfection, that they're not perfect. And you demand perfection, and that perfection can only come through Jesus Christ, your Son. It says in your word, Lord, that he who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, became sin for us so that we might know the righteousness of God. I pray that they would, they would know that their perfection is going to come from Christ. They would know that the problem is that they're not perfect, but perfect, perfection can come from Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that they would know that the work that needs to be paid on their behalf has been paid by the atonement, the blood of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for their sins. He took their place. He stepped into their place. Lord, you're risen. You're seated at the right hand. You've ascended. And you have called people to yourself. It says in your word very clearly that he who believes in the Son has life. Present tense. They can have it today. But he who rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Help them to see, Lord, today that the most important thing that they need is a relationship with Jesus Christ, your Son. And Lord, I just pray this in Jesus' name. I pray for people in our church as well that we would... Be uncomfortable this week in the sense that we'll be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, whoever you put in our path. We do that with gentleness. We do that with kindness. We do that with clarity. And we'd fully rely on you to intervene where you would intervene. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.